If they called Jesus out of his mind, don't be surprised if people you know, people in your family, people in your extended circle sort of look at you askance as you walk by. There goes one of those religious nuts. If they treated our master that way, we'll get treated the same way. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series with part two of Jesus, Liar, Lunatic, or Lord. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to live during the time of Jesus, to hear him teach, and to watch him perform miracles? Well, even though we can't physically have that experience, the Gospels record and give us a glimpse into the words and deeds of Jesus and the reactions of many who followed him. And today, Tom will continue to look at the amazing teaching and miracles of Jesus, but how some of those who were close to him still rejected him and thought he was out of his mind. And as you'll learn today, God is sovereign even over those who seem to reject him. Let's join Tom Pennington right now on The Word Unleashed. Now, the question is, what did they mean? What does this mean to take custody? Well, Mark uses the same Greek word in several other places for arresting someone. In fact, a number of other places. They came to arrest Jesus. Jesus' brothers left Nazareth and went to Capernaum, some five hours' journey away, to arrest Jesus and to restrain him for his own good. Why? Well, verse 21 tells us, for because they were saying he has lost his senses. The Greek word that's translated lost his senses means to be mad, to be crazy. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13, Paul, speaking of how he's often treated, says, if we are beside ourselves, if we are outside of ourselves, if we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. It means to be out of your mind. So Jesus' own brothers, his younger brothers that he had helped raise, have concluded that he is out of his mind, crazy, delusional. By the way, the verb tense here for saying implies that this conclusion had been discussed and repeated often. In the months Jesus has been in his ministry, these brothers have been talking about it again and again, and they have come to the conclusion again and again, repeated to each other, he is out of his mind. What is he thinking? What is he doing? He has lost his mind. He's not thinking or behaving rationally. He is unbalanced. Now the question immediately comes, why would Jesus' brothers have concluded this about him? Well, think for a moment about some of the things that they have seen transpire. There were certainly many possible explanations, but let me just give you a few to think about. What about his becoming a rabbi without any formal training and then gathering so many disciples around him? What about his constant fighting and opposition to the religious leaders of the nation? He's already been in several public confrontations with the scribes and the Pharisees in Galilee. This is not usually how someone who wants to rise in leadership responds. 
What about his authoritative teaching? That's going to make the people in his hometown mad in, a, in a, sh- a short time after this encounter. What about his audacious personal claims? Like back in chapter 2, verse 7, where Jesus claims to be able to forgive sins as if he were God himself. What about his choice of companions and associates? Think about it. Good Jewish boy raised in a good Jewish home hangs around a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. And then he chooses a ragtag, odd assortment of fishermen, political zealots, and tax collectors to be his students. It's a bit odd, don't you think? There are other reasons. Certainly, Jesus' actions and teaching often confused even his disciples, even those closest to him. I mean, Luke 9, verse 45 says of the disciples, they did not understand this statement. They did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask. Luke 18, 34, the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. John 12, 16, these things his disciples did not understand at the first, but after Jesus was raised and glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him. So they were often clueless themselves, and they were closest to Jesus. Certainly those who were more distant had to wonder, what was he doing? What did he mean? But all of these may have contributed, but the primary reason is here in the text. It's here in the context of the verse that we're looking at. The primary reason is in verse 21, when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. When they heard that Jesus was constantly ministering to the crowds with no thought, no consideration for his own needs, they came from Nazareth to take him back to Nazareth by force. In other words, they had concluded that his religious zeal had crossed the line and had become fanaticism. They were of the mindset that, listen, you know, religion is a good thing if it's kept in its place. These brothers were to some extent religious, Later in Jesus' life, we find them going down to Jerusalem for one of the feasts, as the Old Testament had required of all Jewish males. But Jesus has just taken his zeal for God too far. He's become a religious fanatic. They had heard that he was staying up all night praying, not taking time to eat, traveling all over Galilee teaching and preaching. One commentator writes, R.T. France, Jesus' people back home have heard reports of the rowdy scenes in Capernaum, and they decide that it's time to take Jesus in hand for his own sake and for the family's reputation. France goes on to say that this is a more explicit rejection of Jesus' ministry by his family than anywhere else in the Gospels. This is not simply a failure to follow Jesus, but a positive and offensive repudiation. Now the question comes, what about Mary? Why is Mary involved in this? What was Mary's part? Well, William Lane writes, it is unnecessary to think that Mary also suspected that Jesus had lost his grasp upon reality. Her presence with Jesus' brothers indicates that her faith was insufficient to resist the determination of her sons to restrain Jesus and bring him home. But I think John Broadus' explanation is perhaps best. He says, Maybe Mary was sometimes perplexed 
just as John the Baptist was on occasion. Remember, John's the one who baptized him and says, this is the one, the dove descends, and later he sends to him and says, are you the one? Because some of the what Jesus did just didn't seem to make sense. It didn't seem to match. Broadus goes on to say, perhaps Mary sometimes became perplexed by her sons pursuing a course so widely different from what she, in common with other Jews, expected of the Messiah. And in this frame of mind, she could more easily be prevailed upon by the brothers to accompany them without fully sharing either their view or their purpose. She's concerned about Jesus. She loves him, concerned about his health. They think he is out of his mind. So Jesus' family then determined that he was self-deceived and deluded. By the way, their attitude didn't change in the months that followed. If you fast forward to about six months before his crucifixion, you see the same sort of disdain for Jesus. Turn over to John 7. John 7. And I won't go through this whole passage with you. But basically, Jesus is deciding whether or not to go down to the feast because the Jews are trying to kill him. And the feast of the booths was near. Verse 3, Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples may also see your works which you were doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. Here you get a little insight into what they're thinking is going on with Jesus. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, just in case you think I'm reading something in that isn't there, John gives us this commentary in verse 5, for not even his brothers were believing in him. Six months before his crucifixion, his brothers say, all right, if you really are who you claim, if you really are doing the things you say you're doing, you need to go to the feast. You need to make yourself known, and everybody will buy into it. The leaders will buy into it. You won't have the opposition and the resistance you're having now. They did not believe. By the way, this explanation that Jesus was not fully in touch with reality caught on. Turn over a few chapters to John 10. John 10, verse 19, Jesus has just said something else profound as he talks about himself as the good shepherd. Verse 19, a division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? So there's this debate going on, raging about, is he or is he not out of his mind? Really amazing, isn't it? Amazing to think that Jesus' own brothers came to this conclusion about him. What does this tell us? What are some of the implications that we can learn from this passage. Let me just think these through with you, just a couple of things. First of all, as Jesus' followers, we too will often be thought of as nuts, as delusional, as lunatics, or to use a phrase that's common today, as part of the lunatic fringe. It was true of in the first century of Jesus' followers. If you look at Acts 26, 24, you remember Paul finishes giving his little speech there before Felix and Festus, and Festus says what? 
Paul, you are out of your mind. Your much learning has made you mad. In 2 Corinthians 5.13, Paul champions the words of some of the people there in Corinth about him, and he says, all right, maybe I am out of my mind, but if I'm out of my mind, it's out of my mind for your sakes. This was an accusation in the first century. It's also been an accusation throughout church history. You have Athanasius who stood contramundum, that is, against the world, fighting for the deity of Christ. You have Luther in the Reformation. Uh, R.C. Sproul has an excellent chapter in his book, I think it's in the holiness of God, on the insanity of Luther. Thought insane because he stood against all the political and church leaders of his day. By the way, folks, this is still true today. Don't look now, but if you pick up the newspaper, if you read anything written by the intelligentsia of our world, by the highly educated in our culture, at some of the most prestigious institutions in their graduate schools, they think just this of Christians. They're nuts. They're out of their mind. They're part of the lunatic fringe. Now, there are times when I feel that way about some people who call themselves Christians as well, but we all get painted with the same brush. Understand, this will happen. This will happen. If they called Jesus out of his mind, don't be surprised if people you know, people in your family, people in your extended circle, people in the school you attend, the graduate school you're a part of, at work, sort of look at you askance as you walk by. There goes one of those religious nuts. If they treated our master that way, we'll get treated the same way. Remember what I said earlier as we were studying Ephesians? The minds of the world are darkened. We are the sane ones living in an insane asylum. Don't ever forget that. Another implication is that if you are serious about your faith, if you're really zealous for God, if you try to live by the Bible, even unbelieving family and friends will come to the conclusion, as Jesus' family did with him, that you are taking this Bible stuff way too far. It's okay to be involved a little. It's okay to have a little dose. That's good, probably for business, maybe good for your family, but don't go too far. There are probably people in some of your lives who have expressed just this. This is what Jesus' family was saying about him. He's become a religious fanatic. Let's go take him home. He's out of his mind. Don't be surprised if this happens to you as well. Thirdly, understand that this is one of the most common rejections of Jesus Christ and his claims. This is the person who says, and you probably met some, who says, Jesus was a good man. He lived an extraordinary life, incredible dedication, extreme devotion to what he believed, and he meant well, but he had simply come to the wrong conclusions about himself and his mission. This is really the conclusion that Albert Schweitzer came to in his book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus. A good man with a messianic delusion. Some of you are familiar with this book written last century. Listen to what Albert Schweitzer wrote. There is silence all around. The Baptist appears and cries, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Soon after that comes Jesus, and in the knowledge that he is the coming Son of Man, lays hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on that last revolution, which is to bring all ordinary history to a close. It refuses to turn, and he throws himself upon it. Then it does turn and crushes him. Instead of bringing them eschatological conditions, he has destroyed them. The wheel rolls onward, and the mangled body of the one immeasurably great man who was strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is hanging upon it still. That is his history and his reign. A good man with a bit of a delusional purpose crushed by a world gone wrong. There's one huge problem with this theory about who Jesus was. Good men never claim to be God. Christ himself made this point. Turn over to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, and look at verse 17. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him, this is the rich young ruler, and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now watch what Jesus says to him. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. What is Christ saying here? He's saying, listen, If you are not ready to acknowledge that I am who I claim, God of very God, then don't call me good because only God is really good. So Jesus doesn't leave us with that possibility. He cannot be both good and not God. There's a fourth implication that grows out of this text. This episode teaches us the power of God It confirms Jesus' claims for us, and it reinforces the reality of Jesus' resurrection. Six months before Jesus' death, in spite of living with him and growing up within him at home, hearing his teaching, hearing of his miracles, his brothers did not believe. But something amazing happens. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, we learn that on the day of Jesus' resurrection, shortly thereafter, he appeared to James than to all the apostles. In fact, look at Acts chapter 1. You've got to love this. Acts chapter 1. After the ascension, Jesus has just ascended into heaven. They go back, all of his disciples that are there in Jerusalem, verse 12, return to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is near, just a Sabbath day's journey away. When they entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, and then it lists who was there, and it lists, of course, a number of the apostles. Verse 14, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Within 40 days of his resurrection, they have become believers in their brother to be all that he claimed to be. They ministered on his behalf. 1 Corinthians 9, 5, Paul uses them as an argument for wanting to have a wife or, or having the right to have a wife if he would so desire. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Peter? 
James actually became the leader of the Jerusalem church and writes the very first New Testament book. In chronology, the first book written was James. Judas writes the New Testament letter that bears his name, Jude. And I want you to look at both. Turn over to James 1 with me. I want you to see this. I love this. James 1, 1. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Messiah. The sovereign Messiah, Jesus. Jude does the same thing as he begins his little letter. Jude, verse 1, Jude, a a slave of Jesus Christ. And he can't even bring himself to call himself a brother of Christ, so he just says, I'm the brother of James. A slave of Jesus, our Messiah. What produced the change? What happened? You could say, well, it's the resurrection. And of course, in a sense, that's true. But make no mistake, there were many who knew about Jesus' resurrection who never believed in him. The Jewish leaders knew, remember, and they covered it up. Along with the Roman soldiers, they knew, they saw it. They witnessed it personally. So why did Jesus' brothers believe? Listen carefully. This is a powerful point from Jesus' brothers in the lesson we've seen tonight. Because of sovereign grace alone. These men didn't come to faith in Christ because they grew up in a home with godly parents, because they saw a perfect example, because they heard the truth taught and explained by the world's greatest teacher, because they knew Jesus and knew about his claims, because they saw him perform miracles. They didn't come to call him Lord because they lived with him for at least 20 years. They didn't call him Lord because they saw him resurrected. Remember what Abraham told the rich man in Luke 16? He said, your brothers won't believe even if someone rose from the dead. So why did they finally believe? I want you to see James' explanation. Look over at James chapter 1. Here's the answer. I love this. James says, here's why. James 1.18 In the exercise of God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. James understood that God is sovereign in salvation in a way that you and I will never experience. He lived in the same home with Christ, yet rejected him until God chose to grant him life. I don't know why God chose in his providence not to bring James and his brothers to faith earlier, but I do know it makes a powerful illustration of the deadness of the human heart and God's power when he chooses to exercise it. Listen, folks, Jesus' brother's experience should motivate you to pray for the salvation of those you love who don't know Jesus Christ because only God can bring their dead hearts to life. It should motivate you to share the word with them. Since James says it was the word of truth that God used to bring him to life. And don't ever lose hope about that person in your life who doesn't believe. Even after years of sharing the gospel with them, them, perhaps it's your spouse, perhaps it's a child, a parent, a family member, a friend, a co-worker. If God can save Jesus' brothers 
after all those years of living with Christ, hearing him teach, and yet rejecting him, even thinking he was out of his mind, God can save anyone. This episode with Jesus' brothers makes it clear that God is sovereign in salvation. Isn't this true of us? In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That's the lesson of those who thought Jesus was a lunatic. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part two of his current series titled Jesus, Liar, Lunatic, or Lord. Tom will have part three for you on our next broadcast. Join us then, won't you? Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.